In a world with so many movies to choose from, one hero will rise. The Movie Wire Podcast with hosts Justin Hansen. Tune in wherever you listen to podcasts. In the vein of Howard Hawks and George Cukor films of the 1930s and 40s. But were audiences over these comedies by the time the 1980s rolled around? Nick Gardenia, played by Chevy Chase, is a writer who, while laboring over a novel in an oceanside retreat, is kidnapped by two crooks who force Nick to rob a bank for them. Deep in trouble, Nick has no one else to turn to for help but his ex-wife, Glenda, played by Goldie Hawn. But she is a sucker for strays. The house is packed with stray dogs. She takes him in, and the problem is keeping him out of sight of her uptight district attorney husband, played by Charles Grodin. But Nick keeps popping up in unexpected places. Tonight, we will re-examine the film and the critiques of Siskel and Ebert. Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert, two titans of cinematic review. Sometimes right, sometimes wrong, but always captivating. Your host Antonio of the Cult Worthy Cinema Podcast and Justin Henson of The Movie Wire are here to take you back to the balcony. So 1980, Neil Simon seems like old times. Now, this is a film, my friend, that I grew up with as a kid watching with my mom on HBO. I think we also had it on VHS. And this is a time for me where she was in acting school. She was in college to get a drama degree. And so she was reading Barefoot in the Park. She was reading The Goodbye Girl. She was reading The Prisoner of Second Avenue, and we were watching all these Neil Simon plays that were adapted into films, and some of the ones that were written directly for the screen, such as this one. Now, if I have to think about 70s and 80s Neil Simon films that really spoke to me as a kid that I kind of fell in love with, I would say that Max Dugan Returns with Jason Robards and Marsha Mason is one, The Goodbye Girl is none, California Suite, Plaza Suite, I have to say The Cheap Detective with Peter Falk, and this. And I just absolutely think that this film is charming, and it is a throwback to the slapstick comedies, the 1930s and the 1940s. I'll get into my references later. But when I watched the review from Siskel and Ebert and how much they tore this film apart, it really, really bothered me. Because, in my opinion, this film tells you exactly what it is, exactly what it's going for, exactly what's trying to pay homage and reference to, and they don't even seem to acknowledge that fact. Instead, they just want to compare it to what the films in the 30s and 40s did better. So before we get into our whole discussion, I'd like to hear your viewpoint on this film. <laughs> I think this is the first time we're going to be split, my friend. So this one I remember watching on cable TV, just like a lot of us that were first introduced to this movie. And I, while I was watching, I was almost reminded because 
This movie was destined for cable TV with the numerous reruns. Somebody at some point at our age has seen this movie, but that also means I've seen the movie Madhouse with John Larroquette and Christy Alley, but that, and I liked it at the time when I was a kid, but that doesn't make it a good movie. But I think when it comes to the review of Siskel and Ebert, I think it is unfair to your point that comparing it to movies of the 40s, a slapstick, it does have that charm to it but even for movies of the 70s this movie almost seemed like it wanted to be a more of a chaotic movie it has all the elements it has two attorneys it has a writer it has a house of dogs it has a house of criminals this movie just played it too safe the characters to me are just almost cardboard it's almost like they teeter on something great when it comes to a punchline it's almost like telling a joke without a punchline okay Point taken. So my question for you is, do you think that this film was written and directed just to be a romantic comedy of the 80s that was destined for cable? Or do you not recognize the direct homages that it's trying to pay to slapstick comedies and situational comedies of the 30s and 40s? Now, I'm going to give you my examples now where, okay, let's just put it this way. Fatal Attraction, right? Fatal Attraction is the quintessential erotic thriller of the 80s. It's one that kicked off the erotic thriller boom that would lead us into the mid-90s before it kind of started being a caricature of itself, right? But it is nothing but plays and homages to things that happened long before it. The bunny in the pot is essentially the parakeet that's been roasted by Betty Davis in whatever happened to baby Jane, all the little red herrings, all the little twists and turns we had seen in films before. Now, I think the reason why that movie was so popular is that people hadn't seen those. So if you watch it for the first time, it seems original to you. I like the film, but I can't help but acknowledge that it directly stole from other films to become what it is where this film, I feel, pays tribute directly to the films that it's trying to be for the 1970s and early 1980s audience, but I just don't think that audiences got what it was trying to be. They were trying to compare it too heavily to situational comedies on TV, like you're saying, and I think that's where it does get a bad rap because if you are a fan of 1930s and 1940s comedies, I'm going to go ahead and say them now. Philadelphia Story, number one, My Favorite Wife, number two, a very little known underseen film called High Diddle Diddle. But the one that I think it most closely resembles is a film called Merrily, Merrily We Live with Constant Bennett, Billy Burke, and David Ahern, or Brian Ahern. This film directly is influenced by that, I think, the most in the way its situational comedy presents itself. From the dogs, from the hiding under the bed, from the mistaken identities, from the woman who just wants to help and bring people in. Billy Burke's character in that film, she brings in hobos to be chauffeurs. She brings in people off the street to, like, serve the China. And it's just nothing but disaster after disaster after disaster. When I watch this film, I'm watching Neil Simon finally get a chance to write the slapstick farce tribute that no one had really done to at that point. 
And so that's where I think that it gets a bad rap. Yeah, and I can kind of see the references behind it. Um, but even if we look at movies of the 40s, this to me even would have been too safe for the 40s. And when it comes to Neil Simon, he is known. I would look at this movie as a Neil Simon. He's known for these chaotic situations. He's known for these odd plots with, within couples or self-discovery or um, comedic situations that are just oddball. This one didn't scream Neil Simon to me. This is one of his first movies after kind of moving to LA. And this one was a big deal at the time because it had Neil Simon. You have Chevy Chase, Goldie Hawn coming off of their chemistry of uh, foul play. Yeah. Foul play. Thank you. Foul play. And that helped drive it. But you put a Neil, a Neil Simon writer in on the poster, people know what they're getting into. And if I were to go at that time and be introduced to this movie, I wouldn't have considered this a Neil Simon play. If we look at films of the past, if you take out just the situational uh, pieces of it, the situation is there, but the elements that lead up to it um, when it comes to the climax isn't earned. The dinner scene is a fantastic scene. I love the dinner scene. That's the best part of the movie where it, you do scream some chaos. But anything prior to that feels just unearned. You have Chevy Chase hiding under a bed. You have him outside that gets tied up in a garden hose. How the hell that happens, I don't know. But there's a little elements here that does nod to it, but it doesn't follow through. It doesn't actually give a follow through on the actual comedy or the joke. The characters are so land that I really don't care. I don't even know what the hell Chevy Chase is a, is writing about, what kind of books he's writing about. And that could have been a funny bit in the beginning to be introduced to Chevy Chase, but instead we have him as just kind of the one-liner comedic relief and he's treated almost as a prop, saying go under the bed, go outside, get trapped in a hose, uh come in and talk to the criminal server. He's kind of pushed from scene to scene to kind of move this plot along with no comedy written comedy other than chevy chase pushing it it should be the written dialogue first of neil simon not chevy chase carrying the dialogue and see that's where i think that with all due respect you're making the same mistake that siskel and ebert and a lot of other critics did where we only are judging neil simon now by his ability to write dialogue i mean almost all of his movies and plays and adaptations up until this point were mostly semi-autobiographical. They all had a lot to do with like people in his family or his childhood, Brighton Beach memoirs and Biloxi Blues, uh, Lost in Yonkers, like all these things that he had done had something to do with his life or like Barefoot in the Park about how he was living in an apartment with his wife at the time that was freezing with a hole in the skylight. Everything was kind of semi-autobiographical. So now here is Neil Simon wanting to do something that he really wants to do pay tribute on or homage to a genre that he probably grew up watching in the theater. And with that comes a lot of physical comedy, a lot of physical comedy performance and pratfalls. This is where I'm not going to say I'm angry. This is where I get frustrated with critiques about the author, about the writer based on their previous works and not letting them take a chance not letting them be a little bit different because I'm telling you, man, I love those forties and thirties comedies, but you can't tell me that what Chevy chase is doing in this film is really no different than what Cary Grant does in bringing up baby or in arsenic on old lace. Like he's 
pitter-pattering dialogue and then doing a lot of goofy pratfalls. But he's charming and he's Cary Grant and we love it. I think the detriment to this particular film is Chevy Chase being Chevy Chase. Now, I think the character that he's playing and how he plays it works really well, but it is written for a character like Cary Grant, for a character like Brian Ahern. But when you put Chevy Chase in a movie, it just becomes Chevy Chase doing what he's doing. But when you look at Goldie Hawn's performance and when you look at Charles Grodin's performance and how they are talented enough to fine-tune their performance to whatever the hell Chevy Chase is doing, I, I can't help but see that there is a certain majesty with that. Like You're seeing two really great professionals working with essentially a time bomb. It's like Jim Carrey in movies where you have to see people act straight around Jim Carrey. And Liar Liar, I think, is a perfect example when we see the outtakes of Swoozy Kurtz and Jennifer Tilly having to act with him doing what he's doing. But that gets mad props. So while I'm not saying that this is a fantastic movie, trust me, I'm not. I get where its flaws are. I defend what Neil Simon was writing I defend what Goldie Hawn and Charles Grodin are doing with Chevy Chase's performance, and I'm defending that Neil Simon wrote something that I think a lot of people just didn't understand. Yeah, and I can respect that. I, I love passion projects. When a writer is successful most of his career, he more power to him. You, you have even actors that do the same thing. When you do Tommy, Tommy Lee Jones doing Man of the House, more power right. to him. He's <laughs> earned it. But... If you even look, take Neil Simon and his past out of it. You take a look at just the written dialogue, because I had to rewatch this even with subtitles on. Even we take that first introduction to Goldie Hawn and Chevy Chase when he first uh, is on the run and he first meets up with her. That written montage, that written dialogue is just so basic. And because he he goes into instead of explaining his defense. He just has to crack a wise joke that kind of lands flat. And it takes a little bit of dialogue before, hey, this is why I'm really here. And it's just one of those that we're, the humor is trying to force itself onto the screen. And it, to me, that's not, I look at the talent of what Neil, uh, Neil Simon's done in the past on how the style he does. And this style isn't him. It may be a passion project, but there are subtle mistakes in the dialogue that just doesn't follow through. That whole, uh, introduction with Chevy Chase and Goldie Hawn, it's it's simplistic writing that could have pushed that introduction into setting up the rest of the movie on what to expect, what the viewer to expect. And to cut to your point, kind of set up the tone of why we're referencing or what he's referencing from the past. But instead, it's just like, again, you said Chevy Chase being Chevy Chase. You have to put that Chevy Chase Chevy Chase one-liner in there before we get to the point of why he's even there. And we take the chemistry between these three. Charles Grodin, even for Charles Grodin, this is kind of a lame performance from him, in my opinion. This isn't the for somebody that's going to be a district attorney. Mm -hmm. He's too lame, and he's too close together with Goldie Hawn when it comes to their styles. You have Goldie Hawn's uh, body language that kind of really carries her performance but between her and charles groden they're too similar and you take chevy chase that throws a one-liner to say hey all three of us we're kind of different because i'm the one-liner kind of humor guy 
you guys are kind of the same. And I'm going to just kind of give this Montoff of a comedic situation. So Neil Simon, I can all due respect. It's not in comparison to his previous works. It's his style of dialogue and just the simplistic mistakes that he makes to make a comedic movie. Okay. So, but everything that you just explained, in my opinion, is the exact same reflection of the Jimmy Stewart, Catherine Hepburn, and Cary Grant dynamic in Philadelphia Story. It's one of the reasons why I feel Philadelphia Story is highly flawed when compared to other films at the same time that aren't looked at as favorably, because that's how I feel about Jimmy Stewart in those movies. He is blasé. He is a character that you have no idea why Catherine Hepburn would even be remotely interested in him. Other than the fact that he is the complete opposite of the flamboyant Cary Grant. And that's the dynamic I feel they're trying to build here. That's why I say that Grodin's performance is fine-tuned to match the energy that they know Chevy Chase is going to bring. Does that make for entertaining film for everybody? Probably not. I'm just saying that there is way too much cross-comparison between films that were considered classics and what this film is trying to do. Now, where I will meet you at is that if it was me making this film, I wouldn't have made it contemporary. If this film was black and white, if this film was made to be farcical and in the 30s and 40s, let's say if they try to take the approach that they did with uh, Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid, right? Let's say they try and make a, a real black and white cinematic homage to the slapstick comedies of 30s and 40s and play it that way. I think it works. My biggest issue with this film is that it doesn't feel like it's in the right time. And that's why I said at the beginning, were audiences over comedies like this in the 70s and 80s when it came out? I'm going to say yes. I'm going to say that passion project like this came out at the wrong time and for the wrong audience. And you can't help but notice studios trying to fine tune certain qualities of it to make it fit in that 70s and 80s dynamic. But take these characters take this script, change very little of it, and put it in the 1930s and 40s, I'm telling you, man, in my opinion, it stands up to those comedies of the 30s and 40s. Yeah, and I'm looking at it at an angle. If I just walked into a movie and I saw this for the first time, because to your point, we have Heartbreak Kid, we have Goodbye Girl, all these were kind of retold as a remake, if you will, or a remade adapted, whatever it may be, to try and make it current. Um, but they still kept a lot of good things. But both of these, to your point, those fell flat because the timing and the relation to the script, audiences aren't going to relate to it. Right. Um, and if we were to view this movie now, absolutely, I think um, it, the comparisons wouldn't be there. And we'd look at this movie saying, where the hell is this movie going to go? Or what was the purpose of that joke? So I think on a humor aspect of it, if we were to take all comparisons as hard as it is to compare it to other movies or Neil Simon's previous work as a holistic movie, um, it just doesn't work as a comedy, even though I respect the actual slapstick. I respect um, the references from the past. But the only thing the filmmakers here are missing 
if you are going to relate it to those movies, is having at least a musical score to back up that comedy that a lot of movies back then had to relate it to. So if that was the true intent of relating it to movies of the 40s, 50s, what have you, then the musical score just absolutely sucks. And that could have even elevated this comedy a little bit more or actually showed an edge to it. Um, But this is where we see a real big flaw in our director, Jay Sandrich, where you've seen a TV sitcom. He's been part of it. Yeah. And he should know better when it comes to his direction, his director's st- uh, style to actually include that. So there's a piece of flaws in the dialogue, but there's even a bigger flaw in when it comes to the direction of it. Okay, I agree with everything that you just said there. A hundred percent understand that scope of it. But I, I think I'm going to go back to one more time is that there are people that just don't find Chevy Chase funny. I find Chevy Chase hilarious. I, I I have seen a lot of Chevy Chase movies where I think the movie's terrible, but he makes me laugh. Hell, I'll watch Caddyshack too, and he's just phoning it in, but his phoning it in is hilarious to me. So maybe you just have Absolutely. to be a Chevy Chase fan. And it's okay to be on the fence. It's okay to not like some films. It's okay to not like others. I, I think where he does get this film in trouble is when he does try to make it the Chevy chase show. And there's definitely moments of that that are distracting, but I I gotta tell you, like I can't explain to you why I find this film so entertaining and why I find it so funny and why I find it so um, respectful to those slapstick commies of thirties and forties, other than that I've seen a lot of them and I know exactly what they're doing in those moments. And I'm not saying that like, if anyone who hasn't seen those films are cinematic idiots and won't get this. I think that when we talk about the DNA of movies, and we talk about the DNA of movies a lot, we talked about it in The Frighteners, and we talked about it in Invasion of the Body Snatchers, where we saw the seedlings that became those movies and how those movies became seedlings for things that are being made in contemporary times. That This does it. The characters are exactly what I would expect to see in a slapstick. Chester the chauffeur, you know, the guy who was uh, Nalls in The Thing, you know, T.J. Carter, he's, T.K. Carter, he's great. I think he's a perfect accoutrement to this movie. The housekeeper and all the dogs is the same kind of character you would have seen in those movies. So I think the reason why I enjoy this movie so much is because all of the elements that I recognize as formulaic work for me in this movie. And that's why I get frustrated with this particular review of theirs, because these are cinematic giants and cinematic bookworms, right? They should know their films. They reference their films all the time, Ebert especially. So the fact that they can't even take one second to educate their audience in this critique of what Neil Simon was doing, at least in the script, in the dialogue, I found kind of insulting because they took so much time to show the clip of the movie. They took so much time to put down why it seemed sitcom-ish and TV quality-ish that they didn't even give us like a little inkling of what we should have been looking for and where they came from. To me, if it was a bad review, right? I would have loved to have seen them say, 
well, these characters, as portrayed in these films, were much more effective to the story. Where here, we just feel like we need an ethnicity in this scene and another ethnicity in this scene. Fine, explain it that way. Don't just say that it's an old rehash, because it's not, in my opinion. Well, and I'm going to kind of defend that a little bit. Um, I agree with a lot of what you just said, but if we look at if you're buying a ticket to a movie, so does an audience that picks up your review or watches your review want to know the background or do they want to know if I'm going to spend my money? Am I going to laugh? Is it funny? Am I going to invest my time into something that's worthwhile? The history aspect of it, you have brought some brilliant points to the table um, when it comes to the background and history to it. Um, and that almost feels like almost a separate article to be based on a couple works like this. Mm -hmm. But I think the main intent when you go commercial with the review is, are you going to pick up a review and invest the time to read the review and then invest the time, the money to actually watch the movie? So, and if we boil it down to that, based on if I were to critique it, I would say I didn't laugh. I do love Chevy Chase, um, but I think the movie kind of ran dry with the exception, and you brought him up, T.K. Carter, and you didn't even mention Dr. Detroit, which I love. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, <laughs> but T.K. Carter, to me, was the best piece of the movie. Uh, he, to me, he steals the show. He adds that missing element that I absolutely love. When he gets drunk at the dinner, it is comic gold. And that's the exact element that I think I wanted throughout the movie is just having those, oh, God, here we go. What's going to happen? Right. But we can see everything coming. And it lacks that surprise. And when they refer to the review of almost a TV sitcom or meant for TV, whatever it may be, there's some truth to that a little bit because it ended up, when I was a kid, playing nonstop on TV. Yeah, and same. that's because of the fast paced, you know. That's how I saw it. And as a kid, I did like it. I did enjoy it. But this is the type of movie that has to get you at the right age with its simplistic nature and its simplistic slapstick. It's not full-on slapstick, but it's just enough to get uh, a young kid, a teenage kid, involved in it. Because like I said earlier, you know, I loved Madhouse as a kid. But if I look at, at it now, I cringe and ask myself, why do I think this is a piece of crap? Or... Why can I not stop watching it? Because it's just one of those things that grabs you as youth because you can relate to it. It's something that you've watched over and over and over again. And I've watched both of those movies over and over and over again as a kid. So it it does kind of ring some truth to the review, in my opinion. Okay, well, that's an interesting point, but the film was also a massive hit, you know, so people did go see it. It's got Goldie Hawn. Goldie Hawn was huge then. She had Private Benjamin coming out like the next year. Chevy Chase, monster, monster point in his career, only was going to get bigger once he started doing National Lampoon's movies, once he started doing Caddyshack, I think, came out the same year as this. So this was like the year of Chevy Chase. So I, I the, the buying the ticket argument in a lot of cases works. In this case, I don't think it works because people did buy the ticket. And this is one of the times, and it's one of many because... This isn't going to be the only film where one of us is going to agree and disagree with with their reviews. I mean, remember, there's a film coming up on our list that they gave two thumbs up, which still boggles my mind. So this isn't going to be the only time we have this, this conversation. The one thing that they bring up in their review is the fact that, like, okay, we're actually in agreement with each other, which it happened enough. It seems to me that it always surprises each other. 
themselves when they actually agree with something. And if if, if Siskel wasn't so goddamn pretentious with his reviews and you know citing his his movie knowledge and citing all of his his references when he talks down on another film or tries to have a combative argument with Roger if that wasn't like what made him who he was then i would be a little bit more forgiving of this film review but let's go ahead and just play how he introduces this synopsis. Oh, brother, it's all so poor, so predictable. A gag here, a gag there, Chevy Chase falling down again and again. The characters aren't fresh, and unlike the screwball comedies of the 30s and 40s, those grand old films which constantly astonished us with their comic inventions, there's very little that's surprising or off the wall in this movie. So that's my point. He is paying homage to these films, the films that astonished us with their comic timing and pratfalls this film does that i don't understand how he can compare one to the other a pratfall is a pratfall comic timing is comic timing i think it is up to the person that's viewing the film to be objective of how they receive that is funny and i think that they are hilarious pratfalls it works for me so Again, that's my biggest point. I think I've said it 10 times, is how he can say that and try and cross-compare this film with those when I really feel they all belong in the same family. And in some ways, this film, in my opinion, just does it better. So do you think this movie, the studios thought this was going to be a hit? Because to me, I'm going to be a little bit more cynical. Mm -hmm. Because if you take the intent, you take a Neil Simon's uh play, screenplay, what what have you. Then you take Jay Sandrich, who has no major motion picture knowledge. He's done just sitcoms. To me, the puzzle pieces fit on the intent. This may have been a hit, and I don't think that was a main intent during uh, post-production, after screenings and all that. I think there was an intent for this to be bigger on the rental space or the TV space or the cable space, whatever it may be. Um, but I don't even think the studios, if I were to be bold and assume that they didn't even expect this to be a hit because the director just doesn't make sense with the intent of confidence in Neil Simon's work here. Okay. I, I can see what you're saying with the director. And that's one of the things I feel does happen a lot once we get to the 70s and 80s especially is we start seeing a lot of television directors sitcom directors getting feature films and they all kind of have a very similar feel a very similar framing i get what you're saying aesthetically that's where performance comes in in my opinion that's where dialogue comes in and yes there are a lot of moments in this film that are really just setups for a punchline. But that slapstick, man, I, I got to tell you, like 60% of bringing up baby is boring as hell because it's setting it up for the laughs, the funny things. That's the kind of stuff that would make sense in a movie like this. I think that is farce. That is what it's trying to be. And that's where like I disagree with the way he's doing it. I'm going to go ahead and reference the bank robbing scene at the beginning. Just Chevy Chase with the note and the bank teller. It is just two minutes worth of dialogue. But to me, the framing and the energy and performance that's actually kind of like underscored for Chevy Chase 
is what makes that moment hilarious. And when he looks up in the camera and it takes his picture, that snapshot of his face, that is comedy. That works for me. I, I, I laugh every time I see it. And so that's where I just can't let some of this stuff go. And maybe it's just I have too much of a personal attachment to it. That's why I'm not a reviewer and a critique like you. But what I do is defend things that I feel are poorly judged sometimes. Yeah, and I did laugh at the bank robbing scene. I loved that scene. I like between the beginning and the end, those were all fine to me. I I, I like that. Um, I just think the middle fell fell short. And when it comes to both their reviews, I think in fairness, um, especially with Ebert's review, he stated that this is one of those movies that it kind of weighs on the fence on which way you're going to swing. Right. And you, because I think he gave it two and a half stars. Um, but it, I think there was some missing elements. He wasn't on the show. I think it sounded more harsh than what it was, but I think that was out of mere frustration of what kind of review he was going to do, whether he was going to recommend it or he wasn't going to recommend well, it. Let's go ahead and play it. Let's, let's hear what he says. This is more like a TV situation comedy with Goldie Hawn, predictably expressing shock with her wide eyes, Chevy Chase doing his pratfalls, and Charles Grodin acting as always like a stuffed shirt. Absolutely no surprises here, and that's fatal to a comedy. Once again, we're in agreement. I was yeah. really disappointed by this film, and by this whole Christmas season, with a few exceptions. Yeah. You get these movies that come in, they have the great title, the Neil Simon over the title, the Good great cast. cast. Yeah. You think this could be funny. You walk in, there are a couple of laughs, you're all set up, and then it's just the machine turning out the jokes. The characters, they're all pre-programmed, you know exactly what the permutations are. Yeah. It's very boring, very I think your use of the word machine is a good one, and the machine, I'm afraid, is Neil Simon. Mm -hmm. uh, frankly, I think Neil Simon's in serious trouble. He hasn't made a film, I don't know about you, but he hasn't made a film that I've liked, a full-length film in a long, long time, early 70s. So once again, like it's an attack on Neil Simon more than it is the, the film itself. And that's where like we've recognized this in the past, where I feel sometimes... When they get let down by a filmmaker or when they like get down by a, a star or a writer, it sparks a more confrontational conversation about the film and less about the critique and the review itself. We've seen them do that with filmmakers before where it's like, this used to be my guy. For example, Peter Jackson. They stopped talking about the Frighteners and just wanted to talk shit on how Peter Jackson didn't do as well of a job as he did on Beautiful Creatures. And I get it. It is a television show, and they are telling you whether or not to buy the ticket. And there's going to be episodes that we agree with, and there's going to be episodes that we disagree with. But this, again, I, I, I as a film appreciator... I think I spend more time appreciating the elements of this film that work for me and pay tribute to things than I do the actual film making. Because there are movies that you and I both have agreed are total garbage, but they spoke to us and they are, you know, in our our DNA now. They are part of us and we will defend them. And it's just kind of hard for me to to let this go. <laughs> Oh, I totally get it. I mean, there are movies that I can talk about that I everybody just will look at me like I'm crazy thinking that they're fantastic. But here's the hard part about the review aspect of it. It is so hard to leave emotion at the door. There are movies where I will just go in, can't wait to see this performance, and I just come out pissed. 
but in no way should it be an attack and holistically attack the whole movie because there's hundreds of people working on a right. movie. Um, but there is a level of disappointment. And just like when we walk out of a film, we want to express our feelings about that film. But if there's disappointment, disappointment overconquers all emotion. That will take over any logical thought of that movie. And it's hard to do that when you talk about a movie. I'm I'll play the guilt trip on myself on this one that I've been there. I've done that too. Um, that's the first one I'm going to blame. And it's usually the director, but if a performer disappoints me, it's hard for me not to say something. And it is impossible for any creator, any performer to be a hundred percent all the time. You're going to have some stinkers. You're going to have some bombs. So, and it's one of those that we have to kind of just expect walking into the movie, whether this is going to be good or bad. It's a gamble no matter what movie you go to and no matter what performer is going to be there. I referenced Tommy Lee Jones, who's one of my favorite actors. I love that man. But, you know, he has made a lot of stinkers and I've walked out of the theater pissed, even though I knew the movie looked absolutely like garbage. This is one of the things that I'm going to kind of just uh, get back on my soapbox again about the inconsistencies of the portrayals of films, especially in Ebert's case, of what is written and what is said here. So just listening to that review, he just, you know, essentially says it's a stinker, you know, it's like, oh, joke after joke and blah, 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 blah. It's the machine. And oh, yes, the machine is Neil Simon. Yet in his review in the paper, he writes, seems like old times is another one of those near misses that leaves a movie critic in a quandary. It's a funny movie, and it made me laugh out loud a lot. But in the final analysis, it just didn't quite edge over the mystical line into success. So that's the part that bugs me, because are we going to a film just to be entertained, or are we going into a film with the expectation of being blown away? I never sit down, especially in the films that I do for my podcast, with the expectation of being blown away. I always sit down with an open mind, and sometimes I've got nothing but the negative remarks about a film that have been given to me before I sit down, already kind of etched in my brain, and I have to push those aside. This is one of the points I have about the inconsistencies of what he's written as opposed to what he's saying, because this sounds like a very different person than what we just listened to. Yeah, and that could be based on the energy that the two have. I, I don't know, but I 100% agree because before reading the review, um, I watched the actual review and it's very different. And I don't know if he's trying to condense just a complete snapshot only on a really condensed level for the two minutes that they actually talk about the film without the clips. But if... I were to base the review on an accuracy, I would do the written review versus what I actually saw on TV because that's something that I could have related to by reading what he actually put in print because that made sense to me. That actually had some, some clarification on his actual thoughts of the movie other than just giving snippets of why it's bad. So what are the good elements to it? So that's where we kind of missed on the televised review is it's just bashing because there's no positive real elements to kind of cherry pick out of it and it's theater right like they are being dramatic they are creating a sense of theatricality because it's tv because there's an audience and i i get that but this is funny because 
he follows up the rest of that written review with this. This Christmas has had a lot of movies that, like Stir Crazy and Any Which Way You Can, didn't quite make it. Also, 9 to 5 and Flash Gordon sneaked in on their fringe benefits. Only Raging Bull and, in quotes, Popeye are clearly worth the trip out into the raging blizzard. So he already said how he didn't like this holiday season. He mentioned a whole list of movies on this list that three of the five are considered not only cult classics, but comedy classics, comedy gold. And the one real stinker in there, according to most people's opinions, I'm kind of on the fence on it, Popeye, he gives raving reviews to. So again, that's like the thing where it's like, you're going to put Popeye and Raging Bull in the same list. I'm not going to get too into that because we will eventually talk about the Full Metal Jacket, Benji the Hunted episode, which is a big (laughs) point of conversation in the history of Siskel and Ebert. But again, that's where I think when I keep saying, and, and you've said it many times on my podcast too, that art is subjective, that there is going to be people that like it and people that hate it. I, I think my point is the 500 words that you're being paid to write or the words that you're being paid to present on the TV should be the pinnacle of what your cinematic knowledge, expertise, and ability to critique for the masses should be demonstrated instead of just, in my opinion, a rehash of each other's gobbledygook. Yeah, I mean, the key word is impact. What's going to have the biggest impact to readers or audiences? I mean, people are going to look for something good, even though people go kind of to to the negative. But the impact, this review televised didn't have have that impact. It just had a couple guys complaining Mm -hmm. with no substance to it. So the televised review, I'm not a huge fan of. But the one thing that I had to take a step back after watching it is this is super early Siskel and Ebert. So this may be due to the cause that they were kind of going for some underdogs. Like Popeye, in any case, is I'm on the fence on Popeye, but that one was kind of an underdog next to a lot of different films. I mean, you have the branding to it, but it was such an odd movie that I didn't think anybody thought was going to do well, especially with a young Robin Williams. So it's almost like you want to root for that underdog feature film going against another. And you have this young Chevy Chase, Goldie Hawn, uh, Neil Simon, that's taking uh, the holiday where they have a lot of elements that they're going to do well, and they don't need Siskel and Ebert's help. And they don't even think they're contributing at that point because they're still young. They're not, they don't have a syndicated huge TV show, I think at this point. So I think they're just giving their raw opinion to kind of stand out. Yeah, I agree with that hundred percent. But also the fact that Robert, Altman directed Popeye. Robert Altman on the heels of Nashville directed Popeye. So Robert Altman not only gets a pass, but a praise for a film that at the time was a box office bomb and critically panned. Yet he says it's worth taking the trip out in the blizzard for yet seems like old times, which was a hit and currently holds a 6.7 on the aggregators Other critics liked this movie. Now, I'm not saying you're wrong because you didn't like it, that you didn't enjoy it, or that you thought that it was just lacking things that you wanted more of in the film. 
you've verbalized that very well. And that's why we can have these conversations. And I'm not going to say I'm rubber, you're glue. Like it's, you're making very good points and very good objective uh, descriptions of why you think it is lacking in those areas. So I guess my next question for you is what would have made this film better for you? Like what, what, what is it lacking for you that it compensates for me? You know, the, the feeling I get of enjoying this movie and the performances and the homages, like what did it need for you to feel more the way I do about it? So I think I can narrow it down to three different elements, and they're so simple. Uh, the character design, I think, needed to be a little bit more. I needed more substance from him. I needed to care about the Chevy Chase customer, why he's on the run. I needed more than just one-liners. I mean, the one scene that, and I spoke to it earlier, drove me nuts, and it made me question every other joke, just like the domino effect in this movie, is where he leaves the house and he gets tangled up in a garden hose. Why the hell is he in a garden hose? It makes no sense. And that to me is not necessarily slapstick, but just kind of thrown in as kind of a cheap shot or a cheap joke just to kind of gain a chuckle. So the characters don't really have a lot of substance to them to, for us to really care about a joke that they tell. And then we get into a lot of the jokes that really do feel safe for me. I feel like the under the bed scene where Charles Grodin is stepping on his fingers. I think they could have gone and had elongated that up that scene to make it even funnier. So there is a lot of good elements to that scene, but they could have taken it a lot further. The dinner scene, which I absolutely did love, but even at that point, I think they could have gone a little further with that. Um, the Chevy Chase and the tuxedo serving it, it's brilliant. I love that scene. But I would have loved to see Chester a little bit more, kind of pay add more to the chaos other than just being drunk. So there was more there for the... Uh, Neil Simon and the director to play with, um, especially with the camera angles. It didn't create that comedic atmosphere. You had the dinner table that tries its best to go at a kind of a angle to get the entire scene, but it was too safe of, of an angle. We didn't get a lot of body language from the other characters. We didn't get a nice pan of the table to see uh, different aspects, point of view of other characters' reactions. So there's a little, and I'm cherry picking a lot of these things, but it comes to the point in a comedy where if I'm cherry picking all these things to justify why it's funny, then to me, it wasn't a successful comedy, even though to your point, and I love your point, is reference, referencing the movies from the past. But as a standalone comedy, were the jokes successful? The jokes? No. I think they had a great solid beginning. I think it had a great setup. I think it had a fantastic ending, just a little couple things that it missed. And then it goes to a cliche ending in a courtroom that was just lame. So we've had, and if we are to compare it to other courtroom scenes like that in film, it's just talking. There's nothing ludicrous about it. When they're describing the situation, they're describing uh, the events that unfolded. There's nothing special to it. They're just reiterating what we just sat through. There's no humor to you it. Just, you so, just described the ending of My Favorite Wife. That is why I'm telling you that this is a direct homage to these films. Like, to a fault. There may be. There may be. And I don't know Neil Simon. Never met the man. Read his biography. But there may be a true meta satire to what he's doing. Not only what he enjoyed about these films, but also 
pointing out and demonstrating the flaws that these films also had and why sometimes the reverence we have for some of them may actually be over-dramatized, right? Because that's one of my biggest complaints about 30s and 40s farce movies is they don't know how to end the goddamn movie. But it doesn't make me hate the movie because I enjoyed all of the stuff that was in it. But the end of Philadelphia Story is lame. The end of Bringing Up Baby is lame. Even the end of Arsenic and Old Lace is kind of lame. It kind of lets you down a little bit at the end. But enough happens in the movie to make it memorable. So like I said, I'm not saying that this is a fantastic movie. I'm just thinking that this might just be, and this is me getting into my little cinema conspiracy brain, this might be the most under-the-radar, satirical homage to cinema that Neil Simon ever did because it painted way too closely to the numbers of those films, almost to like a, a, a criminal point of like, not only am I going to pay homage to all the great things, I'm also going to write a scene that is actually kind of down like these films did. It, I, I feel like that makes me even like it more. <laughs> I would agree, but at the same time, it has more elements to argue that point, like the music point of it and the clarity of it. It's not enough satire to be satire. It Again, it's part of that safe, safe zone it doesn't kind of know which way it wants to land right. so satire didn't really scream to me on it um i think it's an interesting concept and i think i would have loved it but again i would have loved to see him push that even more to make that messaging clear that this is satire and the other point that we have is this movie did what 48 million i mean at that time it was a hit, a hit. But whatever it may be but we look at fast forward to today Movies from the 70s and 80s, especially comedies, that one doesn't stand out to a lot of people compared to a lot of other comedies that came around that time. So the rewatch value, even though IMDb, I can get in a whole other opinion on IMDb or Rotten Tomatoes, but when we look at how many times that get that movie gets name dropped, it's not a, in the radar, it's under the radar, and I do think it's a it's a decent watch. It's a great rainy day watch. It's safe. It's it's cute. It does have its charm. The characters are charming. The I shouldn't say the characters. The actors and the actresses are uh, charming. We love to watch them on screen. Um, they're fantastic when it comes to how they have fun with each other, but the dialogue doesn't support the fun. So there's a lot of elements that I do like about it, but I just think it plays it too linear. It's too safe. It's straight down the center. And I don't think it knows if it wants to be satire or if it wants to pay homage because neither one support, there's not enough here to support which way it wants to go. The one thing that I definitely agree with you on is that it was in the wrong hands. Uh, the director did really kind of drop the ball visually, aesthetically, and the film does feel flat aesthetically, right? It has a very uh, two-dimensional plane to it, like you would be shooting a stage play, right? And you made it, excellent point about the dinner scene because the dinner scene it to me is comedy gold it's written perfectly it's performed perfectly that table should have been a long dining table with a master shot going down to the end in the film merrily we live 
this scene almost plays beat for beat like the dinner scene in that. And that's how they shoot it. It was shot in a big old grand set somewhere in Hollywood and a forced perspective, long table with everyone sitting down it with Billy Burke at the head of the table and everything that's done. That's a comic pratfall. The, the characters coming out in disguise, all that's captured in a master shot. And the problem is with this master shot, like you're talking about, because it's at a weird angle with that table where really our focal point is the kitchen door because people are coming in and out of it. It does distract from all of the great stuff that's happening in the scene. So I a hundred percent agree with you than that. I agree with you, the music. I agree with you that the, the director dropped the ball. I agree with you that there are comic decisions that don't make a lot of sense, but I feel like blaming the failure of the movie on a couple jokes that went bad is a little bit too much to take away from the things that the film does right. That's kind of where I stand. I agree with all the things that you pointed out with, but at the same time, I, I think that there's just more to this movie than people are giving it credit for. And I can respect that. And the last thing I'll just say is there's no point to these damn dogs in the movie. So other than dogs running, and that's supposed to be the running joke in the movie is just dogs all over the place. They don't do anything with that either. Yeah. But I'm done with my ranting. Watch Merrily We Live because that's where the dogs come from. <laughs> so, okay, let's get to the point where this is uh, my pick. So we're going to go through my ABC grading. Um, I'm going to give my critic, Mr. Gene Siskel, a solid F, my first F on the critiques. Because, again, this is not him utilizing his verbiage, his words. He is literally just spitting out uh, sound bites and hit words and shock words for the viewers. He's playing up the theatricality of how he doesn't like this movie. And even though he tells us why, he is not using his critical mind to explain it in any detail that I feel the film deserves. Instead, he's just painting it with the brush of malcontent and of the Four or five films that we've done so far, I feel this is the one that he actually uses the the widest paintbrush with. And that's why he gets an F from me. So I'm going to be a little bit more generous on Ebert. Um, but at the same time, it's hard to balance both because there's such two contradicting reviews here. Um, I think the television version of it doesn't do justice. I think it's cheap shots. I think it's just an agreement with Siskel. I think there's not a lot of impact, even though the intention was impact. Um, but it is enough to steer people away from the movie to an extreme negative level, which is unfortunate because there are people to your point that will enjoy this movie. Um, but I will look at the written, uh, review that was a little bit more generous as well. That does give a little bit more to it, but it's not enough to be a fantastic review, but I will kind of match his starring review of seems like old times at two and a half, two and a half stars. All right. I, I agree with that. I think that's a great way to put it because, I actually am quite fond of his written review of this. And it, it's disappointing to me that he took such a sidestep away from it in his broadcasted critique of the film. 100%. I loved this conversation because it really is one of the first times where we actually got to debate a film and why. And, and, and again, that's what I think makes our conversation so interesting because you're coming from the point of a critic and I'm coming from the point of an appreciator. 
And it shows that you can have these debates and discourse about movies from two different perspectives because it just makes the movie that much more interesting because you told me things I didn't know about and I feel like I've told you things that you didn't know about. And the listeners can be the same. My biggest advice is go back and watch some of these old films in the 1930s and 40s that this film is a direct homage to. And again, I'm going to I'm going to say the three, My Favorite Wife, High Diddle Diddle, and Merrily We Live. Those three movies are this movie. And I, I don't think there's anything uh, that Neil Simon does to bastardize the respect of those movies. You honestly can feel that he loves these movies and he just wanted to make his version. Yeah, and I think the most important thing, too, is when we have two conflicting opinions, I mean, people that watch the movie, they can decide for themselves, and nobody, everybody's going to have a different opinion. There are people that are going to hate it, there's people that are going to find it okay, and there's people that are going to love it. But the best thing about watching a movie is that you have your own opinion and you can fall in love with the movie or you can have a great conversation at the end of it. So and I think that this one is probably one of the more important ones conversations that we've had just to show a good conversation on finding the pros and cons of a film. 100 percent. Now, just before we recorded, you said that just to get yourself in a better frame of chemistry between Goldie Hawn and Chevy Chase, that you rewatched Foul Play from 1978. Uh, what was your thoughts on that film and how do you think it compares to this one? This is what I loved the dynamic of foul play between them, because here's what we take two kind of young star professionals that want to really do well. And both of them are really like superstars at this mm -hmm. point. And they are really finding themselves. They're really trying to work on that chemistry. And I think when it seems like old times came out two years later, they were too comfortable and they didn't have that extra oomph of dynamic to really bounce off of each other. So Foul Play is a, not a fantastic movie, but it is a wildly entertaining movie. And you get to see these two performers interact with each other in almost a in a raw way, a raw comedic way. And there's a level of appreciation for that. I agree with you 100%. Uh, I think the fact that they don't have a Charles Grodin character in between them in Foul Play really adds to the chemistry in that one. I, I'm like I said, I'm a sucker for seems like old times, but I think foul play is a better performance from both of them. And it, it, yes. it's a more entertaining film. I'm not saying I like it more than seems like old times. Seems like old times is just more in my wheelhouse and foul play is. But I'm glad that you liked foul play because I feel like that is a film that not a lot of people have, have seen. And if they have seen, like my mom sometimes gets it confused with seems like old times so there's that too <laughs> yeah and if you haven't checked out foul play check it out it's it's an entertain wildly entertaining film it's uh it's funny it's just the chemistry is good and the story is solid and burgess meredith man <laughs> yeah absolutely all right so everyone thank you so much for listening to this episode of back to the balcony if you want to know justin's and Maya's actual scores of the movie itself check out our letterbox he's over on the movie wire i'm on the cult worthy cinema podcast you can find links to all of my shows and my reviews on the cultworthy.com and justin where can people find you you can find me on any of the socials and any of the socials and you can uh, listen wherever you listen to podcasts and follow me on any of the socials at movie wire show once again i'm antonio palacios of the cult worthy cinema podcast 
And I'm Justin Henson of The Movie Wire. And we will see you next week on Back to the Balcony.